We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, we're joined by Deborah Flora, who's out with a new film um, called Whose Children Are They? And that title probably evokes a reaction um, in and of itself from our listeners and from a lot of people around the country. Deborah, could you tell us, uh, since this is their first time on the show, before we we, we get into the film and and your your activism on this subject. Just a little bit about yourself. You know how you how you got to where you are right now. You got it. Absolutely. Thank you, Emily. Um, and basically, I'm one of many parents who uh, got my dander up and decided it's time <laughs> to tell the state that um, their our children are not their um, they don't have the right and the absolute authority over our children's lives. So about. Three and a half years ago, I started an organization called Parents United America. I'm the founder and president of that organization. It was after, in Colorado, they shoved the comprehensive sex ed through on the very last day of the legislature, despite hundreds of parents, myself included, being there and waiting hours to testify against it. So then I ended up helping introduce a bill that was basically curriculum transparency, saying, okay, you passed this, now let parents see what is in it. And of course, they didn't want that to pass either. So at that moment, with my husband and I both being in the media, being producers, that we thought, you know, the number one best thing we can do to make sure that this movement isn't one like many historically that just dissipates. We wanted to see this movement be one that reaches that critical mass, that tipping point for real change. And then last summer, I uh, spoke about our school board. It went viral. It was in Douglas County, Colorado, which was kind of ground zero 2.0 right after Loudoun County, Virginia. <laughs> and we actually flipped our school board. So I saw the power that happens when parents wake up, grandparents, concerned citizens. And so the documentary was born out of that. The reality is this is not a top-down movement. It's a grassroots movement in every single home, with every single family, every single school district, every single community. So we made this documentary, Whose Children Are They? And it premiered nationwide this week in theaters. And it is um, a labor of love or outrage, whatever you want to call it, for over about two years of our lives. We really, you know, dug into this and interviewed over 80, you know, brave teachers, caring parents, uh, frontline experts and courageous students, over 120 hours of footage that we pared down to two hours as a tool. <laughs> so one of the interesting things you just said is that uh, for you, this began three and a half years ago, Your this particular focus <laughs> on reclaiming parent power in education. Yeah. And that predates the pandemic. And yes, it, it predates this, this wave of opposition to things like critical race theory and the excesses of, of trans ideology, which has made its way into curricula for very young children. Um, what at that time, three and a half years ago, what was it that, that sort of tripped your radar? Um, and in a way, were you seeing something a little bit earlier for for any reason um, that the country more uh, as a whole caught on to just a little while later during the pandemic? Well, it was the comprehensive sex ed. I mean, the, the straw man argument is that, you know, those of us who stood up against it don't want reproductive biology taught. We absolutely do. We're not prudes. We're not, you know, detached from reality. The re but the reality is comprehensive sex education is anything but that. It is the sexualizing of teaching of children, excuse me. And at that age, they're actually teaching children how to consent, not 
anything about how body parts work. So that also opened the door for gender fluidity teaching for children as young as kindergarten and even preschool. And most parents just didn't even know. The reason why there wasn't an uprising at that point in time is because what is in the comprehensive sex ed is so inconceivable most parents had no idea. And parents are busy. I mean, I'm a parent. I've got two kids along with my husband. We're busy working and getting them to sports practices and just taking care of the everyday things in life. What happened during the pandemic is finally parents were sitting at home and they were actually often asked not to observe what their children were being taught. Like in Tennessee, where the school district actually asked them to sign a form saying, we will not observe. So that really begged the question, what are they hiding? And that is when the vast majority of parents began to wake up, not because of negligence, but because of busyness previously. <laughs> and then they saw the CRT. So what we wanted to do is do a comprehensive expose and say, you know, it's not just critical race theory. It's not just in Oregon or Loudoun County, Virginia. It is a multitude of things that are all connected from the comprehensive sex ed to gender fluidity teaching to anti-discrimination policy that makes many schools war zones to uh, this critical race theory, which was the final thing that led people to really wake up. It, that's the point is it's all connected and we need to have a comprehensive, the only time I like to use that word, <laughs> transformation of our public school system. A comprehensive undoing of yes. the comprehensive uh, efforts from the left. Uh, so I have two questions based on what you just said. First, I'll start with you said um, that a lot of parents, frankly, didn't believe like some of this stuff is just so completely unbelievable that it's yes. hard to convince parents it's real. And I, I experienced that personally when I was in college, um, you know, talking to to my parents about, I think at the time it was a, a chart of different pronouns. And this was, you know, before a lot of that stuff sort of exploded. And they, they really truly didn't believe that uh, my university was implementing a mandatory training uh, for, for us to, you know, learn about all of this, et cetera, et cetera. It was actually, I think they thought I was joking. Right. <laughs> and, and so I want to ask you about your experience um, because it actually is really difficult. Some of the stuff is so abstract, like academic leftism. It's actually, parents are just, they, I don't think they, they initially understood how destructive it was. So again, I just want to ask your experience at, at conveying to parents yes. the the reality of the situation when it seems so wildly unrealistic. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, that was the hardest part in our movie, actually, is the sex education portion, because we actually have a disclaimer ahead of time saying this material is for mature audiences only, yet it's being shown to your children across the country. If we were to have had a rating for this movie, it would have been at the very least R, hmm. not because of anything we added, but because we're actually showing you what they're teaching children as young as eight, nine, 10 years old, or when it's gender fluidity, as long as young as four and five years old. So that's the hardest part for people to see. And you were talking, Emily, about how you were being taught that in college. Imagine, you know, there's a mom that we interviewed um, who basically her kindergartner came home, beautiful little girl. She had no idea what had happened that day. And when her daughter came home at one moment, she she had a bath, her hair was slicked back, and all of a sudden she started shaking uncontrollably. And the mom had no idea what happened to her four-year-old child. Looked and said, what's wrong? And the girl said, mommy, I just turned into a boy and I didn't want to. So you're sending your child to preschool or kindergarten. You know, the very first act of trust as a parent where someone else is going to have that kind of influence on your child. She had to go through 
hoops and numerous steps to even find out that they had told that class that you'd have a boy brain trapped in a girl body or vice versa. So the reality is when you look at what they're doing, these kids are supposed to be going to kindergarten honestly to learn how to be potty trained or color or be socially you know integrated with one another and if the real purpose is to make sure that there is not bullying you don't have to do that all you say is well billy is billy today and susie tomorrow be kind to susie most children are like great i have no concept of that you know i had a friend who said one day my child thought they were a cocker spaniel and wanted to wear a puppy dog outfit you know anyone who knows children knows that at that age they are simply supposed to be beginning to learn the basics of education. And that is why it was so important because, you know, between that and the absolutely explicit nature of the sex education for kids as young as eight, nine, 10 years old, um, most parents have no idea because what we experienced was reproductive biology at middle school age, which is where it's supposed to be. And one more thing, Emily, there's a reason why it's getting pushed younger and younger. Children about eight years old and younger, they have what's called, you know, concrete thinking. You tell them about Santa Claus and Easter Bunny, they go, yep, I believe it. You know, then they get over eight years old, nine, 10, and they begin to have abstract thinking where they can sort it out and say, well, maybe this isn't true for me, but okay, I'm hearing you. That's why they're doing it at such a young age, because they believe it hook, line, and secret. That four-year-old girl thought she had just become a boy, even though she didn't want to be. Yeah, it's so powerful um, in those those formative years, and I think that's absolutely intentional. Um, in, in sort of continuing on that point, there, it, it reminds me of the excuse with critical race theory on the left that, well, we're not actually teaching critical race theory because uh, critical race theory is so complicated. You can only teach it to, to law students. And to the point that you just made about um, trying to instill complicated gender theory in the minds of five-year-olds, um, of course, they're not teaching them Judith Butler, but they are teaching them things that are, it's, it's actually the fact that the stuff is so complicated and abstract um, that's creating the confusion, at least it seems yes. to me. Without a doubt. I mean, they'll call it things like educational equity. They'll call it all of these different things. But everybody knows by now that equity is not the same as equality. Equality is equal opportunity. Equity is equal outcome. You only do that when you gerrymander a system. And the reality in our own school district is a perfect example. They claimed, oh, no, this has nothing to do with CRT. Then there was a leaked training for, I think it was over 800 educators. That was done by a group called the Gemini Group. Group. And it literally broke children down into oppressors and oppressed. And of course, white cis males, Christians were the worst. And by the way, in that training, they referred to parents as dissenters. And the teachers union referred to us as barriers. And we're like, sorry, we are not barriers or dissenters. We are the moms and dads who have the ultimate authority in the upbringing of our children. But critical race theory is being implemented as a lens through which everything is being taught. I mean, there's stories all over the country of kids being asked to, you know, go to one side of the room or the other, depend on their oppression status, you know, and what they're really doing. I mean, it's, it's an extension of Marxist critical theory. All that is, is divide people into groups, tell one they're bad, the other they're victims, and then pit them against each other. And then, you know, in Russia and in China, it was done as race or class. All they're doing in America is they're making, excuse me, as, as a income or class. All they're doing in America is using race. And they're basically saying you have less melanin in your skin, you're inherently evil. If you have more melanin in your skin, then you're inherently a victim. And that's why in our documentary, we interviewed 
so many parents that were actually in St. Paul, Minnesota, right around where George Floyd, uh, where it was ground zero. And they were primarily black parents saying, over my dead body, will you teach my child that they are oppressed victims and unable to achieve? And you take this to its furthest extent, Emily, and you see what you're seeing all across America where they're eliminating honors classes. They're eliminating standards because what are they really saying? It's extremely racist. Let's call it what it is. It's neo-racism. They're selling, they're telling beautiful children with more melanin in their skins, you know, you really just can't achieve honor status. So we're just going to remove it for everybody. That's crazy. That is absolutely crazy. That is judging people by the color of their skin. The Washington elites strike again, asleep at the switch as the markets fluctuate, losing Americans hard earned money. Seems like it's time to look for places to invest with a little less Washington in the mix. How about an asset that's been around for 277 years? I'm talking about fine art. Not many people know, but returns in the contemporary art market specifically have outpaced the S&P 500 by 164% from 1995 to 2021. So it makes sense why the ultra-wealthy have been hoarding it for centuries. But now there's a startup called Masterworks that's allowing access for all, just as investors are looking for new areas to diversify into, too. And how they're doing it is changing the game. They enable you to buy shares that represent an investment in a specific artwork so you can invest in multi-million dollar paintings without needing the multi-million part. And Federalist Radio Hour listeners get special priority access. Just go to masterworks.art slash Federalist. That's masterworks.art slash Federalist. And see important Regulation A disclosures at masterworks.io slash CD. Talk to me more about that, because um, Matt Taibbi had a great investigation um, out here in the Virginia area about how it was Asian parents um, in Virginia and Loudoun County and Fairfax County that were getting so tired of this ideology uh, because it was really punishing their kids uh, in, in this effort to, um, you know, sort of implement equity, the equity agenda. It was ending up hurting minorities. Well, I'm curious, as, as somebody who's probed this question in many states and all around the country, it's certainly been my experience reporting this out that actually a lot of um, people from minority backgrounds, especially recent immigrants, um, people who believe so deeply in the American dream that they sacrificed things uh, to get here. Um, it's really, really offensive to them. Has that been your experience as well? Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. I mean, and here's what I'd ask anybody who says they're for CRT or they believe this concept that we have to level the playing field based on right now how many minorities of different melanin levels are in different classes. Do you really believe that the level of melanin in someone's skin predisposes them to achieve or not to achieve? Because that's what they're saying at the end of the day. Oh, well, we can't have that many Asian Americans, you know, in honors courses or getting into Ivy League schools because it's disproportionate. Do you believe that they're there because they're of Asian descent? Or do you believe that they're there perhaps in their upbringing and in their culture? Maybe the focus on academic achievement was a little bit more intense. You know, do you really believe that a beautiful child with 
more melanin in their skin, just somehow just can't achieve that. Because if you really examine that, that perspective, it is racist at its core. That's why Dr. Carol Swain, Robert Woodson talking a lot about this. So that is what is going on. And it's, it's just terrible. In fact, there were so many parents that spoke out, the vast majority of them Black Americans who are like, hey, I'm a successful woman who is now 70 and I'm a lawyer and I remember what racism looked like when I was told I could never do this. So mm. you're not going to tell my children or my grandchildren that. That is what is going on and that is why there is this uprising against it. And that's what they're using as, as an excuse to eliminate um, graduation standards in Oregon. Instead of saying, maybe we're failing all students because no student should graduate from high school without the ability of being proficient at reading and math. And you should never say to any student, oh, you just simply can't get there because you, you because of your skin color. That It's outrageous and people are rising up and waking up and realizing it's just wrong. And another thing I wanted to ask you to uh, pick up on or another point you made, I wanted to see if you could pick up on was the the comprehensive nature of how these things are all basically tied together, mm -hmm. that the, the implementation of the radical trans theory and critical race theory is sort of all part of the same basic agenda. Um, can you can you sort of elaborate on that? You know, how. How are these issues connected and, you know, who is there a sort of um, let's say, uh, you know, obviously it's not just one group, but is there a, a particular um, a particularly formalized or organized thrust happening? Without a doubt. So when you watch the documentary, we're talking about whose children are they, and you can go to whosechildrenarethey.com. What you see in the documentary is that it's really the teachers unions. The teachers unions, we give a brief history because we want people to know we are pro-teacher, we are pro-parent, we are pro-student, we are pro-unvarnished education. I mean, the strawman argument, by the way, is if you're against CRT, you don't want the teaching of history. No, you want the real teaching of history. <laughs> but the unions have partnered with groups like the 1619 Project, who admit it's not based on history, it's based on an ideological worldview they're trying to push. So the teachers unions are behind most of this with their ideological ideological partners, whether it's, you know, BLM or Planned Parenthood, who are now getting clinics in many high schools, unbeknownst, and even middle schools, unbeknownst to parents. So they're the ones behind it. They have had a radical tilt for a long time. And it's not to help teachers, by the way. It's actually to kind of bully them into teaching the things that they want to have taught. And you see this comprehensive, um, once again, that terrible word. If you want to use the word systemic, let's use it this way. <laughs> systemic indoctrination, let's call it that. And so we do go through a history of it because John Dewey, who was the founder of modern education, he created most of the teaching schools. He was not only an honorary member of the NEA, the largest teachers organization, he was also a card-carrying communist. And it, we're not just coming up with, you know, um, conspiracy theory here, it's planned out. He was a fan of the Soviet style of schools, which basically is Marx's idea that from the moment a child can be without their parents' care, without their mother's care, they'll be in the care of state institutions because they believe it's the right of the state to teach a child about everything from morality to worldview to allegiance, not reading, writing, and arithmetic, math, you know, science, history that most parents believe is what they're sending their children to school for. So yes, we make a very um, comprehensive lineup 
of the steps that have led to this. It's been going on for a while, and we're just now finally seeing the full exposure of it. And uh, so that's why we encourage people to see the documentary, because it's, it's all laid out there. Yeah, I want to actually talk about the title, um, it, given exactly what you just said. Um, Terry McAuliffe obviously had that uh, moment of stark honesty that he probably regrets. Um, but what you're saying is essentially that the the Terry McAuliffe line um, was is revelatory of the philosophy that's basically based, baked into our education system, that its development is predicated on a very specific idea about the roles of, of teachers and parents. So could you talk to us a little bit more about uh, the yes. history there? Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, it is the heart of the question. It really is. We're looking at a fundamental crossroads of two worldviews right now. And if we don't take a stand now for the one that we know intrinsically is what every parent knows. I mean, and by the way, this is a nonpartisan movie. Politics will find it. But I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican, you're a mom and a dad first. And you know in your gut it is the fundamental right of every parent to be the ultimate authority in their children's lives. Now, people would distort that. Of course, if you, there are abusive parents, we have laws in place, but the vast majority of parents know their child better than any bureaucracy ever would. If you have more than one child, you understand how your children are different. You understand why educational freedom is so important because one child may flourish in this area and another might in this way. But that is the Judeo-Christian worldview that is the foundation of our country and of freedom. It's the right of every parent to have the oversight and the responsibility for the formation of their child. The Marxist view is it is the state's right that really they have the right to indoctrinate the child to form that child in every possible way, morality, worldview, et cetera. And that's a crossroads. So make no mistake, whether it is the first phrase of it takes a village. Yeah, well, maybe it takes, you know, a group of friends, but that child does not belong to the village. That child does not belong to the state. The only thing the state is supposed to do with our tax dollars is give our children an education that we have an oversight of and not one that is you know, in any way out of the realm of good academics. But here's the, here's the key, Emily. As indoctrination has increased, education has decreased. You see plummeting, plummeting scores across the country. So the real role is education, and we're spending more and more money on it, then where is the proof of that? For instance, right in Colorado, where I live and where, you know, where we filmed a fair amount of the document, we did it nationwide, Right now, less than 40% of students are proficient in reading. Hmm. Less than 30% of students are proficient in math. Where is all that money going? It's going to ideological indoctrination. It's not going to educate. It's also going, by the way, to you know, basically increasing the bureaucratic structure, huge increase in administration. And the reason why is teachers unions get more dollars. There's more people in the building and there's more people to have all this time to do oversight on how to get some of this um, ideology into the classroom. But is the fundamental question of our day, whose children are they? And that brings me to uh, a huge question that I'm actually kind of afraid to ask because it's <laughs> it's getting at something uh, that seems like 
an impossible task, which is, you know, you, you just made this important point that our education system is so broken. Not only are we teaching these inane um, and fictional ideas that are, are not rooted in truth and that are so harmful to children and defending them bitterly and, and casting all of their opponents as bigots. Everything is so backward on that front. But it's also the education system is, is very plainly failing the students period. It is not doing its job. It is, it is, not, uphold, it is not upholding high standards of education, um, especially for a system that is as well-funded as ours is um, and has as much money as ours does. So <laughs> this is obviously, I feel like there has been a huge turn and there's been a surge. There's been so much momentum um, from, from parents and activists. And it has really, I think, done a, a lot to restore sanity in our curriculum. Mm -hmm. But even if we did remove all of that, I mean, how, what can we do really? Uh, how optimistic are you <laughs> that our, our education system can, can realistically um, be, be fixed um, in, in a reasonable time frame? you know, say the next, the next 10 years? Yeah, well, thank you. Don't be afraid to ask that question because there's actually so much that we can do. It may have taken us <laughs> decades to get here from the progressive movement. It won't take us that long to get back. Mm -hmm. So that's what we end the documentary with is just this understanding there's something everyone can do. So first of all, teachers, Teachers don't have to be in the union. There was a Supreme Court case that freed them up from forced unionization. And they're often kept in there because they are told, you know, it's fear mongering. If you aren't in the union, terrible things are going to happen. No one's going to support you. You won't have liability insurance. That's a bunch of bunk. Honestly, there's so many other places where they can get that support without being forced into ideological um you know, indoctrination that they turn around and have to do the others. We have to look at what's going on in teachers' colleges. Those were started, as I said, by John Dewey, who is a card-carrying member, basically, of the Communist Party and a NEA um, uh, honorary president. Then parents vote for school board members that do not take union money. If they take union money, they're beholden to the unions. So the structures are there are public schools, but we need to know who are making these decisions, who are making the decisions of what kind of programs are in the classrooms. And then parents have to get involved. And every single parent has to know what's going on in their school's education. And if it's being hidden from you, if people will not tell you, then do pull your kids. There are alternatives. Also, legislatively, Stand up for legislation and those who would pass it, who will pass the money following the student, not the system. Educational freedom benefits everybody, and it benefits most of all those who are the most vulnerable, those who are underprivileged, those in the inner cities, single parents, minorities. They benefit most because they should not be stuck in failing schools, and the competition will actually make our public schools better. That's what studies show, not this fear-mongering, straw-man argument that, oh, if you take the money from public schools, they'll fall apart and underprivileged students will, will uh, be the victims. It's quite the opposite. When you do have educational freedom, when you have charter schools, when you have money being able to go wherever the parents want to take it, it actually increases the levels everywhere. Now, will it happen in one year, two years, three years? No. Can we get a long ways there in 10 years? Absolutely. And I would say one of the number one things is make sure you know what the youngest children are being taught. No child in kindergarten or preschool, and if your child's that age, should be taught 
anything about gender theory. They're just learning to be potty trained, for goodness sake. Let's not steal the childhood and the innocence from those vulnerable ones amongst us or over-sexualize them. I mean, that is what's happening in, in elementary school. And then if your kids are older, then really make sure you know what's going on. Be engaged, be involved. We can turn this around. But this is, I believe, our time in history to have that critical mass where we achieve true educational freedom and true reform. But it's going to take every single one of us. That's why we that's why we are putting the movie out there. Share it with everybody so they stand up and realize what's at stake. It's such a strange balancing act. And I'm thinking right now of the language and the, the Florida bill, um, because it actually is really difficult the way that some of these topics are taught to capture that in legal language that is not also, you know, overstepping and, and you know, making things difficult for children, whoever they may be. Um, it's actually it's really tough because of the way the subjects are taught. And I, I'm mm -hmm. curious if you if you can talk a little bit about that and in, in when you're sort of teaching these very vague concepts and you're doing it in so many different ways and that's it's very it's very difficult to distill for children in the first place um isn't it hard to sort of craft legislation that that accurately targets that or that targets it really well do you have any concerns about how tough that would be well, I think that the fact is we just have to, first of all, stand up to the straw man arguments. I mean, you mm -hmm. know, the, the Florida bill, when they say, oh, it's the, the don't say gay, <laughs> don't that's say absolutely gay. not. It, when you, and, I, and, and Ron DeSantis pushed back on this really well. He just said, listen, and this is what we're saying to people. We're talking about four to eight, nine-year-olds. Can we just, for goodness sake, let them go and learn about reading and writing and socialization? And I don't mean socialization as in teaching the full plethora of gender identity. All you have to teach children is be kind to one another. I mean, that's all you have to do. So first of all, we have to push back on the, the bully tactics that they're trying to do because they know that this is our window for common sense legislation. And the vast majority of people actually agree with this. I've talked to many, you know, gay, lesbian parents, transgender people who are like, you know what? I want my right to do whatever I want to as an adult, which is not what we're talking about at all. That is a right. And it's a right that everyone should stand up for. We're talking about kindergarten through third grade, just getting to go to school and not have these deep concepts of gender theory and sexualization thrust upon them. So as long as we stand up to that, to that false argument that's trying to bully people, same thing with CRT. Be prepared. In 10 seconds, you'll be called a racist. And then just say, <laughs> sorry, it's not true. That's prejudice. You don't know me. You know, you move on. And they'll be silenced because we are for the unvarnished teaching of history. We're not for the distortion, especially of minority children with more melanin being told that they're victims. So we have to stand up. There is common sense legislation. One of the number ones is things is to empower parents. Make sure that there is curriculum transparency. Yeah. Not every parent's going to be able to Go, sort through it. And by the way, it may not be actually in the textbook, although it is in many textbooks. <laughs> like we don't really need to know the, um, the the sexual identity of a historical figure to know that they had the courage to stand up and, and fight something. So it's in some textbook materials. The rest of what we need to know, the curriculum. We need to be able to say, hey, let's let's get back to where we can go visit our classrooms and just see how our kids doing, you know? So, so we need curriculum transparency. We need the money following the student, not the system, because every parent, especially those in inner cities, underprivileged areas, single parents, minority parents, 
have should have the right to make sure their child goes to the best school for them. It might not even be ideological. Maybe their child is better, you know, in a non-traditional school. Maybe their child is better in a STEM school. Why would we limit that choice for every child in this country? So there is common sense legislation. We just have to stand up in this period where the bullies are trying to silence us and say, you know what? That, that holds no water. That's a straw man argument. And then we continue with common sense reform. If they can't silence this, then we, we will not be stopped. So that brings me to my, my final question for you, Deborah, is you sound optimistic. And perhaps it's because you, you believe these sort of false charges of bigotry have lost their power uh, because they've been, they been over-applied and misapplied in so many different ways. Um, are, you, are you optimistic? Because you really do sound uh, like, <laughs> like you think this is, that there has been um, progress and that everything is going in the right direction. And, and this is a really uh, doable feat. Yeah, you know, everyone who uses the word racist in a knee-jerk reaction, which is what they do, it's, a, it's like a playground bully, you know, tag, you're a racist, and then they run off. It's doing a huge disservice to our history, because true racism is a horrible, awful, terrible thing. But if we overuse that word, we desensitize people to it, and they no longer even look at it. You know, that is, that is what is happening, because they use that word all the time thinking that people will be bullied into silence. The reality is if we just stand up to and say, yeah, that's actually not the truth. I want my children to understand the horrors of racism. What I don't want is you teaching a false narrative and a false history that the founders of the 1619 Project even admitted wasn't history. So, so if we actually expose the agenda and we're just not afraid, I mean, honestly, it, you know, it, gosh, it goes, all, we're talking about schools. It goes all the way back to the playground. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. They won't hurt you if you stand up to it and realize all they're trying to do is bully you into science. And the reason why I'm optimistic is because at the end of the day, the, the stealing of the innocence of our children is a step too far. Every parent whether they're a Democrat or Republican, knows in their heart of hearts that when it comes to my kids, I can take a lot of attacks, but when it comes to my kids, that is too much. So the entire reason why we made this documentary, Emily, is because in every movement that you see in history, there's a point where it rises up and either it dissipates, which we don't want this one to do, or it rises up and it reaches critical mass and real change happens. You saw that with the civil rights movement. And by the way, I'm waiting for the day when Martin Luther King Jr. will be banned because he dared to say, judge someone by their character, not the color of their skin. So we actually know in our heart of hearts that we're on the right side of history, which we are. We'll get through this turbulent period where people want to just call you a name. People have given far more than just standing up to a name to have real change for a real cause and protecting the innocent amongst us, our children, is a cause worth standing up for. I do believe if we can reach that critical mass, which we're pretty close to doing, and hopefully this film will get people across that finish line, which is, by the way, you don't make a documentary for fame and fortune. You make it to give a tool to every <laughs> single person and say, hey, share this with your neighbor. Share it with your children's teacher and let them know we're pro-teacher, pro-children, uh, and pro-parent. And that's the triangle of education we need to return to. The documentary is Whose Children Are They? Go to whosechildrenarethey.com. Deborah Flora, the founder of Parents United. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Ellie. Thanks for getting the word out about this. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, you've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at the Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray.